the reading is uh, John 3, uh, and that's 13 to 36. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Enon near Selim, because there was plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. On the screen now, you can see a picture of Paul David Hewson. Paul David Hewson, a.k.a. Bono. Now, in January, I've read the superb Surrender, which is Bono's autobiography telling the story of his life. I commend it to you. I've got no copies over there. I'm not just a Dell boy of books, I assure you. In the book, he's reflecting on his work as an artist, but also as an activist. I don't know if you know, but he was passionate in seeking to cancel the debt of many countries in Africa and in the third world. He's met with many politicians, many uh, presidents of the United States. When he was reflecting on his time with Barack Obama, he said this. Shared facts and diverged on opinions. Now we have a few shared facts. And there are plenty of opponents determined to push back on anything that might resemble a real conversation or the possibility of compromise. 
He said Obama inherited a White House where there was agreed truth, where there was an understanding of shared facts and people's opinions differed. But now, he says, the cultural winds have moved so that truth is up for negotiation and everybody has an opinion. And thanks to social media, everyone has a platform to make that loudly known. And if you don't agree with that, just join Twitter this afternoon. We live in an age, don't we, where my truth rules and reigns, where the language of the psyche is most important, where relationships are affected by your truth and how you feel. Cultural debates are shaped by not what is true, but again, what it means to you and if it's true for you, and that's affected our churches as well. Many churches' theology has been changed to keep in step with the culture rather than what is true. The times they are changing, that's from the 1960s, but actually it's very, very uh, apposite to what is true in most churches today. And so we change our practices to keep in step with the culture. We change our language so that what is culturally true shapes what the Bible says to be true. How you feel has become more important than what God has said. Now, why do I say that? Because this morning we read the most famous verse in the Bible. Cast your eye down, please, to John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God is a God of love. It says it there in chapter 3, verse 16. It's there on T-shirts and on signs at sporting events. At the Ryder Cup, it's always there behind one of the greens and so on as the Americans beat us for another opportunity in time. But notice what happens next in John's Gospel. John chapter 3 and verse 17, you see the word condemnation. And then verse 18. We're told that a person who does not believe in the person of Jesus Christ, that doesn't look upon them in saving faith and reliance, that's in verse 12, twice, verse 15, once, and verse 18 again, stands condemned already. Someone that does not look at Jesus Christ in a saving way stands condemned already. Verse 36, that's, it top and tails this passage that Joel read so clearly. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Well, which one is it? Is God a God of love? Verse 16 tells us so. Or is God a God of wrath? Verse 18 and verse 36 tells us so. And the Bible says it's absolutely both. The Bible says God is never to be understood as a God of love or a God of wrath. He is both. God's love is seen in his just anger that's not flaring up like a volcano. When will God explode next? God's justice, his wrath, is his settled, measured, appropriate response to all that is wrong in the world that the Bible calls sin. God's love and his wrath, God's love and his justice do not oppose one another. They are intertwined in his character. God's justice is a completely loving expression of his nature. And his love is a just expression of his nature. They establish one another. They are not intention. They're part of his character and heart. His wrath, verse 18, verse 36. His, the language of condemnation reveals that God is a, a God of righteousness, of holiness, of otherness. 
that the Bible says, and so does Truth on Fire, that's available for seven pounds in the book corner. His love and his settled, measured response to all that's wrong in the world are not like ours. We get angry, we flare up when we're having a bad hair day. When we read something that's unjust in the world, sometimes that's a right anger. God's justice is always appropriate. It's always balanced. And it's far stronger than ours because he is holy. I want to look at this passage to understand God's character as revealed in John's gospel. And here's the first thing to look at. God's God's wrath is actually an expression of his love for the truth. God's wrath is an expression of his love for the truth. Notice, please, many people say, verse 16, I love that verse. I'm not a Christian. I've got lots of questions about the Christian faith and the character of God. I struggle to live in a world where suffering is on every page of the newspaper or on every screen that I scroll down. I can't believe verse 18, however, in a God of wrath and a God of standards. I want to spend some time thinking about that. Where do you think we got the idea from that God is a loving God? Where did that idea come from? If you didn't have the Bible, where would it come from? It would not come from the main religions of the world. God is not loving. If you look at the teaching of Islam, of Confucius, of Buddha, and of the Hindu faith. God is a God of love. And that comes from the Bible. It comes from his revealed word. It came from his revealed word. You would be very odd and very strange if you did not behave in this way at least three centuries or three millennia ago. Three millennia ago, if someone opposed you, if it was an opposing force or clan or tribe or people group, you would not just get equal, you would double pay back. Look at the Syrian army. Look at the Assyrian army. They were ferocious in their warfare, and they worked on this principle. If you cross our land into our barrier, if you cross into our territory, we will give you back tenfold. There was not the lex on talionis. There was not an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. There was not proportional warfare. There was severe strength, severe anger, severe displays of power and might. Skin would be removed from uh, bodies. People would be made into human candles. There was no justice. There was no balance. It was no eye for an eye. I will pay you back doubly if you have the audacity to attack me. Just look at history. To prove that point. And everybody believed that. Now the pendulum has swung completely in the modern age. In Western culture, in our time, it was once true that uh, an individual was trampled upon if they crossed your threshold. But now the individual is exalted and is supreme. No one can tell you what's wrong. No one can tell you what's right. It's only what's true and what's right for you. Everybody has to find their own God. And then religion has no place in the public square, in our schools, and only in your own heart. Religion has become privatized, you could say. And then in comes John in verse 17 of John chapter 3, and verse 18 of John chapter 3, and down in verse 36 as well. And John says this, there is now no condemnation. God's wrath is upon you if you do not trust in the person of Jesus Christ. There is an absolute standard behind that sentence because God is absolutely true in his nature and in his personhood. And if you find the idea of wrath offensive, if it's new to you this morning, 
Well, can I suggest to you it might be because you might find the idea of absolute standards as offensive. Morally repugnant, you could say. And that is what the Bible is teaching. Out of the nature of God, the character of God, who John has introduced to us in John chapter 1, verse 1, God is the source of life. God is the maker and author of all that we can see and all that we're still understanding. If you were born 300 years ago and you went traveling around the world, you would find the prevailing thought in that period of history was the love of God. It would have been a, would have been a, rather a foolish idea to believe in the love of God. 300 years ago, it was about God being uh, a powerful and mighty but not loving. In the modern world, God is only loving. And he can't be just. And there can't be moral standards that call us to account. And yet every year people say this. Where have our values gone? Where have our standards gone? What's wrong with the moral fabric? What's happening to our young people? Don't believe me? Well, on the BBC website you could look up a study that was revealed just this week from the Children's Commission. The Children's Commission has said this week on Tuesday, I believe, it is deeply concerning that uh, 10% of our 9-year-olds, 27% of our 11-year-olds, over 50% of our 13-year-olds have seen pornography. It's deeply concerning. When are we going to get our values back? When are we going to get our standards back? We've snookered ourselves using a sporting term because we want to live in a world, don't we, where there's generosity, where there's fairness, where there's love, where there's respect, where there's honesty and loyalty. But a scientific worldview cannot give us the values and the standards that we long for. C.S. Lewis put it like this. We remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and we're shocked to find traitors in our midst. See what's happened socially? We want God out of our lives, we want God out of society... And yet we want the very thing that he offers as a derivative of his character. We don't want standards. We don't want anyone to call us to account. We want people to be moral and kind. But we've got no workings for that to happen. It's like men without chests. John's introduced to us the person of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 1. He is the word of God. He's the author of life. <coughs> Excuse me. He's the creator of life. He's the source of light and life. But verse 19 of John chapter 3, we prefer darkness. We prefer to live a life without God. We prefer to live a life as if we were God. We were created by God. We were made for him. We owe him everything, but we want to live life our way. We want to be our own masters. And the Bible says that's sin, that's law-breaking. And so God, in his settled, measured, appropriate response, is opposed to us until the debt of our sin is paid for. God isn't capricious. He's not like a volcano. He's certainly not cranky. But his justice arises out of his heart of love. It arises out of a love for righteousness and his standards and his character. That's the first thing. Two points, and then we're going to get loads of application, just so you know where we're going. Here's the second point, though. Number two. It's on the screen here. God's wrath is an expression of his love for his people and his creation. 
expression for his love for his creation and his people. Now, Becky Manley Pippett is on the screen. She's a superb and very uh, wise communicator of the gospel and about what it means to live for Jesus. In one of her books called Hope Has Its Reasons, she's wrestling with this understanding of that the Bible presents that God is a God of wrath, of anger at sin. And she's talking about this scenario saying, I've got a couple of friends. I love them dearly. They've made a huge impact on my life. And yet I see in their hearts some decisions that have been made that have ruined their characteristics, that are ruining their lives and their potential to live for Jesus. They've discovered drugs and they've become heavy drug users. She says, think about how we feel when someone we love, their lives are ravaged by unwise actions. And then she begins to tell a story about her friend. She says, I feel fury when I'm with my friends who are now heavy drug users. Everything in me wants to shake them, saying, can't you see what you're doing? Don't you know what you're doing to yourselves? You're becoming less and less yourself every time I see you. Drugs are just ruining and ravaging your body. Then she says this, real love stands against the deception and the lie that sin and the sin that destroys. She says, anger and love are inseparably bound in human experience. And if I, a flawed, self-centered and sinful woman, can feel such pain and anger over my friend's condition, then how much more can a morally perfect God feel that? And he made them. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. And the final form of hate is indifference. Just do what you like. I'm leaving the room. God has not left the room. Here we have in John chapter 3, surrounding the most famous verse in the Bible, the character of God revealed afresh. He is the God of love. John chapter 3, verse 16. And he's a God of holy justice, holy wrath. He's not ill-tempered. Look at verse 18. It does not just say the person who rejects Jesus Christ is condemned eventually. It doesn't say that. It says, whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Already. Verse 36. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. My anger blows up. But it's a fearful thing that God's wrath is not just waiting for us in his settled measured response to all that's wrong with the world there's a present tense in verse 36 saying God's wrath remains on you in your life today unless you choose to believe in Jesus Christ God's law expresses his wisdom God's law is loving they're not there to break you or to ruin your fun they're there to guide you like a schoolmaster into the light of a relationship with him where there's fullness of life to enjoy. And when you break the law of God, you break yourself, says the Bible. Because God's wrath is based on a love of truth and standards, a love of you and a love that all that he's made. And that's why he gets angry, because God is not indifferent. He's a God who moves towards us, taking all the initiative, because God is love. And it's not mushy. 
It's not once a year on the 14th of February. It's strong, it's committed, and it's covenantal. And God's wrath flows from his love for his own glory and reputation. And he hates to see the brokenness that sin brings into the world. So God is a God of love. God is a God of settled measure of response to all that's wrong in the world. He's a God of justice and anger, but the Bible says wrath. So how do you put those two together? John chapter 3 verse 16 tells us how. You look at the cross, and that's what I want us to do for the remainder of our time. Number three, the real God can only be understood if you understand the cross. That's at the very center of the Christian faith. God is both a God of just standards and a God of love. How can he satisfy his need for justice in all that's wrong in the world without destroying every rebel? God is not the God of Star Wars. He hasn't got the death star that he wants to destroy and obliterate every rebel force. How can God satisfy his need for justice that's in his very nature and also not deny himself as a God of love? The cross tells us how. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, stood as our substitute. He bore the blame for the sin of the world and our rebelliousness. God's wrath is satisfied because of the cross. And on the cross, God poured out his wrath on his son. All of the punishment that our sin deserves, all the rebelliousness, all the deliberate turning away, all the sins of intentionality and the ones that we did, if you could say, accidentally. All of the punishment for sin is poured out by God the Father on God the Son on the cross 2,000 years ago. At the same time, as God's justice being satisfied, you see on the cross the love of God poured out. God's love and his satisfied displayed on the cross. And if we believe by faith in our hearts and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Christ, God can take us into his world, into his kingdom, into his family. We can be adopted as his children. John chapter 1 verse 12 and verse 13. Why? How? Because our sin has been paid for. That's the maths of the cross. Think of the cross of Christ and the justice of God as lethal radiation. Now, some of us have been through this. You've got to go because their cancer or a tumor has been found in your person. And the doctor says, we can do something about it, but we're going to zap it first with a lethal dose of radiation. And then you go, and you might have to be uh, shaved in certain areas. You might have to have certain preparations. You might have to have dietary um, work up to that moment. You might have to have iodine gone in your person. But you're prepared for that moment. And then they don't just get you prepared physically. They also want to protect you. And it's not just the people that give you the radiation, but sometimes you have to wear it yourself on a certain part of your body. Now, that's not a bad image for what happens at the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross, God's wrath is poured out on our sin. And yet we are protected as if it were Jesus Christ in his finished work, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, acts like, as it were, a covering for us. So that God zaps 
He zaps, as it were, the sin in our hearts. And that shapes our whole body and our existence. And yet we are not destroyed because Jesus Christ is, is like the lead plate that God looks on us and sees his son. And so the tumor of our sin is dealt with. The cancer of our sin is dealt with. And we are not destroyed or devastated. This is so central and so profound. John Stott put it like this. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. That's the cross. Man claims rights that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone, man and woman alone, of course. So the cross means that if you believe in Jesus, there is no wrath left on your account. It has been paid for in full forever. It's all fallen onto the person of Jesus Christ who took it at great distress, but took it willingly for the glory and renown of his father and for our great good. On the cross, both the love of God and the standards of God are fully satisfied. On the cross, the love and wrath of God perfectly and brilliantly coincide and shine forth in the middle of history. If you understand the cross and how God gives his only son, taking all our wrath that we deserve, then you can live a life, verse 18, of no condemnation. Now, how is that possible? It's this repeated word, verse 12. It's there twice. It's there in verse 15. It's there in verse 16 and verse 18 and verse 36. As John says, all you need to do is believe in the means that God has provided for your rescue. In the Old Testament, it was symbolically shown by a, a snake on a pole. And in the New Testament, it's the Son of Man who's lifted up from the earth. That people from the Old Testament and people in 2023 are saved in just the same way by looking at the Messiah, the King, the Word, Jesus Christ. There is now no condemnation, verse 18, for anyone who has believed in Jesus Christ. And Paul just gets taken up on this throughout the New Testament. He wrote most of it, if you're new to Christian things. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he, he wrote a letter to the church at Rome. And he said, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The peace of God is a feeling. He doesn't say that. Paul says, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we have peace with God. It's not the peace of God, it's peace with God. Because of what Jesus has done. No condemnation because your sin has been paid for. It's been dealt with in full. My love is displayed and so has my justice been satisfied. That's the cross. It's an objective thing. There's no hostilities. There's no warfare now between the heart of heaven and the character of God and the love of God. And you, if you're trusting in Jesus. This is objective. This is truth. This is historical. And this means that because of what Jesus has done, God is for you, not against you. No condemnation. His wrath and his love blaze 
like a brilliant neon sign over your life. God is for you. He's not against you. God is your ally. God is your father. God is your protector. And God is your friend. Just meditate on that for a year or two. Now, do you believe that? Do you accept it? That now it's possible to live a no-condemnation life. I want to think about that for five minutes. What does that look like? It's all been a little bit high. Let's get down to ground level. What does it look like, Christian friend, to live no condemnation now? Here are a few things to apply it to us. Number one, when you see more of your sin in your life, when you see more of your sin in your life, instead of driving you away from God, that awareness should drive you to God. If you understand that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you say, I'm a Christian, I believe I'm saved by faith, I believe I'm saved by faith in the person of Jesus Christ and I've experienced his unmerited favor. I've not done anything to deserve this. I've just done the very opposite. I deserve condemnation and now he treats me as a son and a daughter of the king. It's amazing to me. I'm not saved by anything I've done. It's all of him. If you believe that, then are you living it? This is how I'm tempted to think. When uh, there's an incident in my life, I, I know I've sinned. I know I've deliberately, intentionally done something that is against the will and law of God. When that happens, I've, I've spoken harshly. I've lied. I've been dishonest in some way. When that happens, I think I've messed up. I know it. Does that drive me towards God or do I feel that I can't go near him? If you feel like me that I can't go near God when that happens, that means that you're not living a no condemnation life. I can't even approach him. I can't even go to church. I don't even want to see a Christian friend. I can't even pray or open my Bible because I've done this. I've used my resources in this way. I've used my computer in that way. I've used my body in that way. I can't go near God anymore. I'm so ashamed. You're not living a no condemnation life. You're, you're understanding the cross intellectually, but you're not living in its shadow. The more you see and understand the truth of no condemnation living, when you sin, that should deepen your love and affection for Jesus. It should not drive you away from God. It should drive you towards him in deeper understanding. Lord, I know you now and I love you more because I know you died for me knowing that I would do that very action. Your love for me, your acceptance of me, the truth of the cross is greater in my understanding now because the sin I've committed, I'm so sorry that I've done it. I wish I hadn't done it, but I thank you so much that you love me in spite of myself. No condemnation living. You're not driven away from God. You're driven towards him in a deeper love, in a deeper affection. Because the love of Jesus is greater than you thought before. The heart of God is more merciful and more precious than you thought before. If you understand you're not condemned then the revelation, the understanding of the depth of your own heart as you journey with Jesus, as Margot said so courageously, when you discover more weaknesses and more faults and more rebellion, it drives you closer to Jesus, not further away. There's now no condemnation.
Verse 18, whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. Verse 19 says, you used to love living in darkness. It's always easier to sin, isn't it, in the dark? Shut the door, draw the curtains, even if no one else is in the room. What's all that about? Because we love darkness when we know we want to do something that we know will displease God. Let me into a secret. God can see through curtains. And he can see in the dark as well. He hasn't had his carrots, but he can see. But now we love Jesus and we move towards him because we understand the love that he has shown for us by dying on the cross, John 3.16. Here's the next test. What does it look like to live a no-condemnation life? Live without fear of judgment. Live without fear of judgment. I'm not afraid of death because Jesus died for me. I'm not afraid of the future. Why? Because Jesus died for me. He knows the depths of my heart and he loves me the same. It doesn't matter what other people think about me. I'm so, I used to be such a people pleaser. I used to be so constricted by what I said and how I dressed. And, but now I realize that God is for me and I'm a new person in him. What confidence I have. I'm not afraid of meeting God. I'm not afraid of seeing him because I know that he's for me, not against me because of the cross. Paul said, Constantly, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul knew a little bit about people being against him in his life, didn't he? Back being whipped, stones being thrown, death threats on his life. And yet Paul is saying, no, look at the perspective. They are against me, but look who's for me. And because he's for me, they can say what they like. They can do what they wish because I'm a new person in him. He's in charge of it all, the future, and he is for me. I'm not afraid of death. Why? Because I know that he loves me. That's no condemnation living. Last of all, how do you deal with your conscience? You're walking down the street. You've got your thoughts and mind are racing. And you think about the voice in your own heart. It's not just you that has conversations in your head and heart. I do it too. Look at you. Look at all the things you've done. Just this last week, look at what you said when the doors were shut. And you expect people to love you? Call yourself a Christian. Look at you. When that question comes, here are your options. You've got to deal with it. Here are your options. Well, I had a bad day. That's why I behaved like that. I was having a really, I'm under a lot of pressure. Actually, I had a really rough upbringing and a very difficult upbringing. And therefore, that means I have acted like this in this situation. Every Christian has to deal with their conscience, don't they? But listen to the logic. Even if I hadn't done this thing, even if I hadn't been filthy about that moment, does that mean that you'll be acceptable to God because of those things? That's works. Jesus is my record. Jesus is my wisdom. Jesus is my righteousness. Jesus is my redemption. So when the voice comes, you need to hide, you need to retreat, you need to not go there. Don't you dare go to church. How could you? People knew what you thought and said and did and looked at. You couldn't be at the front. I will not retreat. I do not need to hide in shame. Jesus says to me, I love you. Come here because I took your blame. You do not need to hide. You do not need to be ashamed because Jesus bore your sin. That's no condemnation living. Do you understand what happened at the cross? Do you live what happened at the cross? No condemnation, living. Someone's put it in this lovely way. The cross shows us that we are more wicked than we ever dared to believe. 
and you are more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. Why? Because on the cross, the wrath of God and the love of God have come together and both have been perfectly, once and for all, satisfied. I used to be a light-hating, darkness-loving person, verse 19 and verse 20. And then verse 16 happened in my heart. If you're not a Christian this morning, this is the key sentence in the whole Bible. This is God's love for you and for his glory. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Have you believed on him? Have you looked at him? Have you seen the depth of his love for you? Let's pray.